Oh, I needed that. Isn't that music wonderful? Brian, thanks to you and the team. Whew. I knew this week was going to be a tough one. I had uh, probably the most intense assignments that I've had in the four months since I've been a part of your church staff. And I knew going in that uh, if I could breathe at the end of this thing, it would only be because there's a God. Isn't it great when God presses us beyond our capacities? We hate it, but you need to experience it because when that happens, you begin to see how sufficient God is when we're pressed beyond our energies. Um, there's a, a, a great composer and poet of our generation. His name is Paul Simon, and he has one phrase that I really like. Why does everybody laugh when I say Even in the first service, they laughed. Robert Frost, Paul Simon, Bob Dylan. I don't know how you're going <laughs> to... Emily Dickinson. How you, you got, that's the big, the big four or five. Um, uh, he says this in one of his songs. He says, it's all right, it's all right. I'm just weary to my bones. I like that phrase. It's all right, it's all right. But man, I am weary to my bones. We all have times like that. And even Jesus had times like that. And where we enter into the text today, into his story, is right when that has happened. Um, so open your Bibles, if you will. Open them to Mark chapter 6. Let's take up where, where Rob left us off so well last week. Jesus had sent the disciples out. Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 30. Turn them on, open them up, flip the pages, however you can get there. We're going to have a tremendous time going through three key stories. But here's the atmosphere of the whole thing. This is the setting. They are all wore out. Jesus has lost his cousin, John the Baptist. He's been beheaded. You remember that from last week. Matthew says to us in the parallel to this, it says Jesus wanted to get away by himself when he heard that. Grief, terrible grief had set in on Jesus. The disciples had just been sent out. And, and, and incidentally, weariness isn't only from bad things in our lives. Weariness happens because of so many good things. And so Jesus had sent the 12 out in twos and the kingdom of God had multiplied by 600% as they went out. And they would say the demons were obeying them when they used Jesus' name and they were proclaiming the kingdom of God and people were being healed. And they all came back together weary to their bones. That's why it's really wonderful that Jesus says to them, Verse 30, the apostles gathered around Jesus. They reported to him all that they had done out there, all that they had taught. And then, verse 31, because there were so many people coming and going, they didn't even have a chance to eat. You've been that busy, haven't you? Isn't it nice to know even in that Jesus is your companion? They didn't even have a chance to eat. That's how busy they were. They're all exhausted. And so he says to them, this is a great verse, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. 
Did you notice how I, I even dropped my tonality there and I tried to soothe the words out toward us? <laughs> I didn't intend to, it just happened. They're so good. Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. Oh boy. Verse 32, so they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. Jesus is taking his guys on retreat. Oh, wow, do we need retreats in our life. For those of you who don't work on Sunday mornings and you come here, this is meant to be an oasis in the wilderness. This is meant to be soul retreat. Sabbath is meant to be soul retreat. And then we also have the need for extended times, especially depending upon the weight of life that w that's coming at us. At any and it, it's wonderful. Jesus says, hey, let's go away, guys. Let's retreat to replenish our souls. Some people retreat just to get away from life. But God's plan is, no, no, no. You retreat in order to get replenished in God, replenished in life, because your reasoning will sag, your emotions will be out of control, your nerves will be on edge, and your body will break down. That's what it's like living in this world. The Apostle Paul says we are just all like broken vessels. But then he says, in whom God has planted the amazing reality of himself, the Holy Spirit. So we need to get away to reconnect. We want to be, as one of our uh, staff leaders said this week, we want to be human beings, not human doings. And so um, I want to let you in on something. This message was created not just for the congregation, but for our staff. There's about a hundred of us that get paid in some way, shape, or form for working in this place. And I want you to know they work really, really hard. Sometimes it scares me uh, how hard they work and how hard I can work and we are in danger of becoming human doings instead of human beings. And that's not what you need from us. The word busy used as a modifier to pastor, busy pastor, should sound to your ears and mine in the same way that adulterous would be used to modify a husband or selfish used to modify the word friend. You need us to be replenished so that we can pray with you and teach you and walk with you as we seek God together. And so, congregation, you have our permission to come up to any of us at any time and simply say, are you replenished, Pastor Jeff? Are you replenished, Jill? They're both sitting in the front row. That's why I picked on them. It's, it's not because they are human doings more than the rest of us. In fact, I'm a better human doing than they are. <laughs> but would you do that, congregation? Come up to us at any time. Are you replenished? Are you being replenished, Pastor Lon? We need you. We need you to show us how to live the Spirit-filled life. And so for my staff friends, too, this message is for all of us. Oh, it's going to be great. This retreat's going to be great. Isn't, it? Isn't this going to be a great retreat? Nope. I hate it when life interrupts our life plans. 
Verse 33, many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. Where they were going in the boat on retreat, we figure is about four miles of gentle sea. They're going to relax even on the way. But here's what evidently happened. The crowds that they had just left saw the direction they were going. They were going due east on the north edge of the, of the sea. And it says the crowds started going after them on land. We estimate that the four miles of sea charted here are about ten miles of walking and running to get to where they're going to land. And so I'm thinking James and John and Peter and Philip, they're, they're so pumped, but they're so tired. They're war-weary. They're beaten up. And now they're seeing the crowds on the shore running after them. Oh, no. And they get, and sure enough, this is what happened. Verse 34, when Jesus landed, he saw a large crowd. And then, notice this, he had compassion on them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. When Jesus saw the crowds, even though he himself was in grief and weary, something rose up inside him and he could see beyond himself and he saw into them that they were harassed and they were helpless. They're like sheep without a shepherd. And even a weary Jesus was taken again by God the Father and the Spirit who indwell him and he rises to it and everything in him is going to help. I want to say that to you. Everything that is God is available to help you. This week, uh, Marie read an article to me about a woman who's had a really tough life. And she summarized the article by saying, life is really beautiful, and secondly, life is brutal. So she coined a new word, and we've got it for you on the screen here. Life is brutal. I kind of like that. It kind of says it pretty well. I, I suggest we see this as how life is. And Jesus could see into the beauty and the brutalness that all of these dear people were experiencing and everything in him because Christ himself is filled with God the Father and the Spirit and wham, he is going to act. Contrast the disciples. Look at the next verse. He had compassion on them. They're like sheep without a shepherd. So he begins teaching them. And he's going to feed them. I mean, he's, he's going to take it over the top. Jesus always took it over the top because he was always a man with God the Father indwelling him. Always took it over the top. Verse 35. But by this time it was late in the day, so the disciples came to him. This is a remote place, Lord. It's already very late. Please send these people away. Now you see how I emphasize it. That's what they said. Send these people away. Uh, it's very late. Then they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and the 7-Elevens and get some food to eat. The tonality sounds caring. The reality is... They thought this was their retreat time. And Jesus, instead of saying to the crowds, I'm sorry, I, I, I just want to be with my guys right now, 
he is pouring himself into them. He's teaching them. And the, the, the disciples who've come back, war-weary, wonderfully full, but every part of them is, is just weak and broken down. Send them away. They're going to get hungry, Jesus. They're going to get hungry. They've got to go out there and eat. Now watch what Jesus does. <laughs> they thought they'd given Jesus a great excuse to dismiss them. What does he do? Verse 37. Look at it. What's he do? You feed them. Uh-huh. You give them something to eat. Look how they respond. That would take more than half a year's wages. Are we supposed to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? We don't have the cash. It would be like a half year's salary to be able to buy enough bread to feed these people one meal. There's 5,000 plus humans there. So the first thing that hits them is in the pocketbook. We're not that generous uh, to, to give everything that we've got and they probably didn't have that much anyway. Then Jesus says, no, 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 no. Um, <laughs> he presses deeper. Uh, how much bread do you have? What do you mean, how much bread do we have, Lord? Uh, oh, we don't know how much bread. We'll, we'll check, check and see. How much bread do you have? Well, whatever we have, it's not enough. But it is our bread. And they had five loaves and two fish. End of verse 38. Oh, incidentally, we're told in one of the parallel passages, these are barley loaves. And so don't think loaves. Think dinner roll size of the cheapest grain there is. And when you think two fish, don't think massive St. Peter's fish, which are like this in the Sea of Galilee. Think a little larger than a sardine. And Andrew or, or Philip had packed those for the boat ride. And, and it was really all they had, and they were going to share that amongst themselves. And what's Jesus saying? You thought you were tired. You thought you were wore out. I want you to give them all your money and give them your food too. Oh, wow. The law of God, listen to me now, the law of God and the will of God is meant to kill you. You say, what do you mean? It, the law of God and the will of God is meant to kill any notion you have of self-reliance and that you got it in you to get this done. And that's what he's doing with the disciples right here. He's pressing them to a level they, they can't imagine getting to. Lord, we don't have it. Lord, it's, it's my bread. Lord. The big idea that's coming out of these two passages is this thought. You can't live the Christ life unless Christ is living it through you. It takes bigger than me to be what God wants me to be. It takes Him. And He, he will kill any notions that we have of rugged self-reliance and independence in life. Some of you have gone through lots of these experiences. 
Well, let's go on. Things are happening here. They got the five dinner rolls and the two sardines and Jesus directs them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass so they sat down I love, I love Mark he says remember the grass was green so this was a desolate place but it wasn't the desert was it the grass was green they sat down in groups they looked like a Roman army out there sitting on the grass and then Jesus taking the five loaves and the two fish he looks up to heaven he gives thanks and he breaks the loaves. Now, what's that remind you of? Uh, scholars believe that this is both a pretaste and a foretaste. What Jesus is doing here, where he's going to feed masses of people with bread that doesn't exist, is it's pointing back to the wilderness and the manna that God provided just what they needed every day through Moses. It pre-presses and then it foretastes that in a very short period of time he will stand in an upper room and he will take bread and he will break it and he will say, this is my body which is for you. He is the ultimate bread of life and soon his life will be broken for the sins of the whole world. This is a massive uh, issue. Incidentally, this is the only miracle that is in all four of the Gospels. So it has meaning galore in it. But in this case, it just starts to multiply, and it starts to multiply, and it starts to multiply. Verse 42, they all ate, and they were all satisfied. Now, I emphasize all because some Christian liberal scholars will say, no, no, some Christian liberal scholarship starts with the notion that miracles can't happen. So if you start with the notion that the natural laws of the universe cannot be interrupted by God, then you have to find a way to explain this. And the way they explain it is, they have four reasons. I'm just going to give you the one that's the most plausible. When these people saw that Jesus and the disciples took the little bit of food that they had and they started breaking it to share it with others. Then the few of them that had brought food with them also did the same. And when that all happened, there was this great generosity of noble men and women that fed everybody. Well, it doesn't make any sense. Number one, the text doesn't say that's what happened. Number two, they had run, walked, 10 miles. If they did have any food, they'd eaten it on the way. And if only half of them had food or any portion of them and they were to divide it up, how would it be that all ate and all were full? No, no, no. A better way to look at that is the way the Bible says it. That massive amounts of food. 5,000 men and Matthew says and women and children were fed and then what? Look, everybody, this is so great. And the disciples picked up, verse 42, what? Twelve basketfuls of broken pieces of bread. Why was it twelve? You guys, you thought that by giving all that you had, you wouldn't have anything. The extravagance provision of God was there for them. This is generosity in action. Look at this great verse from Philippians 
And my God will meet all of your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. You can't outgive God. My God will meet all your needs. <laughs> each of them was going to eat a little bit of a dinner roll and a little bit of a fish, and now they each have massive baskets, which they will soon take into the boat as their retreat recommences. All right, two big points there. God is sufficient to meet the needs of us at any given time. Second big point in this story for me is a little bit can be a whole lot with God. It could be that some of you say, I don't have much to give to God. You have more to give than you can imagine. I don't have any gifts. I don't have any talents. I don't have any time. The little that you have when given to God is magnified into a massive amount. That's why I wrote this little line. It's really not as good as Paul Simon would do. A little bit of you and a lot of God is always a miracle with a little M. A little bit of you and a lot of God is always a miracle with a little M. We're going to show you a video here in about 30 seconds. And it's going to show you what happens when regular people like you and me actually go to a place like Africa where in northwestern Kenya, severe drought over the last 10 years ended their economy. They were ranchers who raised cattle, nomadic ranchers. They lived on the cattle. The cattle have all died. The land is parched. And there's no food. And so God created a miracle with a little M through his people, many of them from our church. Watch this from Kenya. The work and partnerships of Wheaton Bible Church in Kenya have been going forward for over 10 years, starting in 2004 with a response to the global HIV-AIDS crisis. In 2011, as our AIDS ministry in Nakuru was moving towards sustainability, God guided us into just one of those moments where we were not sure exactly where it was all going. In the midst of a terrible drought and devastating famine in Turkana in northwest Kenya, God brought our church into additional partnerships with World Relief, Parklands Baptist Church in Nairobi, and a fellowship of local pastors from the Turkana region. As we prayed and planned how we might best respond to the immediate crisis, we soon recognized that God had again guided us into new territory alive with possibilities and challenges that would require courage and faith. In that moment, Hope Kenya was born, and now we are amazed at what God has cultivated through those partnerships. It's nothing short of miraculous. Creative water access and distribution for families, livestock, and farming. Small-scale kitchen kits where families cultivate home gardens, providing enough food for themselves and the start of small businesses. In both Turkana and Nakuru, true development is happening. Conversations have changed. People will grab our hands and say, come, come and see what we have done. Discipleship and development are interwoven. In Turkana, children flock to the new Youth Empowerment and Resource Center, and pastors with their wives came together to strengthen their marriages and their communities. In Nakuru, small businesses and cooperatives have become sources of small business loans, and empowered men and women have started schools with a dream of seeing every child in their community educated and nourished. In 2014, funds from Wheaton Bible Church will be used to maintain and expand youth programming in Nakuru and Turkana. 
Alongside a remote community in Turkana, our friends and partners will build a sand dam to create a reservoir for sustainable water access and storage year-round to support hundreds of families. In both Turkana and Nakuru, our goals remain the same, to see the prevalence of HIV-AIDS declining as the literacy rate rises, youth discovering their identity as children of God and ambassadors of peace, communities transformed as they discover God-given gifts and work together with His people around the world. And because God has done all of this, we jump. We joyously dance and sing praises to the God of the harvest as He works to see the spiritual and physical needs of His people abundantly met. The writer Thomas Merton once wrote, You do not need to know precisely what is happening or exactly where it is all going. What you need is to recognize the possibilities and challenges offered by the present moment and to embrace them with courage, faith, and hope. That's pretty good. We are now in that Turkana region. Some of you have gone. Our youth have gone. Uh, we're working with World Relief. We dug wells. We showed them how to pump out the water. They're growing gardens where nothing would grow. They're starting micro-enterprise systems of being able to sell food to people at costs they can afford. It's reshaping a society. Jesus was pointing to that happening when he broke the bread 2,000 years ago. But here's the cool thing. That's not just happening in Kenya. You can see by our GO teams, just the places we're going this year. Imagine every one of God's churches throughout the world that is bringing the miracles with a small M to this world. That's pretty good. Little becomes much in the hands of the Lord. Does God want you to go somewhere? I think so. I'm your pastor. I will be dogmatic now. Thou shalt go on a gospelcation. If you haven't gone on one of these week trips to experience God at work throughout the world, we'd encourage you, singles, couples, families, etc., go out there, get pushed beyond your limits so you can see how great God's limitlessness is, and then watch what happens. Okay? All right. <laughs> All of that from the feeding of the 5,000. But we're not done yet. My goodness, look what happens then in verse 45. Immediately after the, everybody's fed and Peter's carrying his basket of food into the boat, okay, immediately after that, it says that Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after leaving them, he went up on a mountain to pray real quickly. They got back in the boat and they continued on their journey east toward Bethsaida. They'd landed before they'd gotten there to be with the people. Now, he says, you guys, head to Bethsaida. Okay, that's very important. All their food's with them. It's a lovely, calm night. You know what happens to the disciples on lovely, calm nights on the Sea of Galilee, right? You're going to see it again. But hold on, don't go there yet. Don't go there. Jesus stayed and dismissed the crowd by himself. Why? We're not sure. Why didn't the disciples stay there and watch him dismiss all the people? It could be they were so wrung out and they had not learned yet how to depend on his sufficiency that he didn't want them around the people. 
could be that it could be that this area of Galilee is the place where a movement called the movement of the zealots had started in AD 6 a man by the name of Joseph Judas the Galilean started a new political militaristic party called the zealots they existed to destroy Rome's occupation of Palestine not so dissimilar to some of the stories you hear coming out of Syria or Egypt or anywhere today they were powerful they were strong and it may have been that a lot of them were there with Jesus why because the Republican and Democratic caucuses of the zealots had all met together and they knew Jesus was their candidate and the disciples can get sucked into that in a second but Jesus is far larger than El Presidente and Jesus knew that political and military solutions are always partial and nothing's going to change until human lives get changed from the inside out so it may be that he just had to deal with that on his own we don't know next thing we know is it says after the guys were out on the water Jesus goes to his retreat he put them in the boat for retreat now he goes to retreat up on the mountain to pray oh he used to love to do that get away alone with God whenever he could replenish his soul okay <laughs> but once again don't you hate it when life's plans get shattered by life verse 47 later that night incidentally this is between 3 and 6 a.m. is what we're talking about now the boat was now in the middle of the lake wasn't, wasn't supposed to be there the boat was to go along the shore two miles east to Bethsaida it's in the middle of the lake and as you'll see later it's being pushed backwards not forwards it will end up landing ten miles to the west of where it was supposed to go and what does it say Jesus from the mountain could see the disciples straining at the oars underscore that word straining it defines life for many of us straining at the shore because the winds were against them can't they catch a break no because this these two stories put together are a massive lesson for the disciples to push them to their physical and mental capacity end so that they can start understanding that only Christ can live the Christ life in and through them this is all part of the same teaching that is happening here and so what they are best at is, 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 is rowing and being on a lake but now it's pushing them backwards straining the Greek word can be defined straining can be defined as torturous it was torturous what they were doing Jesus sees them he looks at his watch he says just about time and he heads down shortly before dawn he went to them now I'm gonna say four things about this this is huge walking on the lake passing by them do you see that in the text right there 48 walking on the lake passing by and when they saw him walking on the lake they thought he they didn't think it was Jesus they thought it was a ghost it's a Greek word that we have for phantom not done yet then they cried out in terror because they all saw him 
the phantom, and they were terrified. Immediately, Jesus spoke to them, and he said, Take courage. It is I. Ego, a me. Don't be afraid. And of course, that's when he steps in the boat. Now, some of you have read the story where there's a little more that happened here. Peter, in seeing the phantom, the phantom on Galilee is here by your side. Okay, so Peter says, hey, can I go out there? I'll walk on that water. And, and you know perhaps what happened. He starts walking on the water. Then he looks how horrible the waves are, and he starts sinking, and Jesus lifts him out. But here's the bigger, powerful meaning of these things, I think. He li literally was walking on the water. This is supernatural from the get-go. Secondly, when it says he was about to pass them by, why would he pass them by? Ah, that's not what that means. This notion of the glory of God passing by happens three times in all of the Bible. It's not talking about God literally moving past a person. It's talking about the glory of God literally overwhelming. It happened to Moses just before the Ten Commandments. God, can I see you? God says, you couldn't stand to see me. Oh, please. All right, hide your face in a rock. And Moses, I will pass by. Happens to Elijah. I'm so tired, Lord. I'm so tired. Please give me a sign. Give me a sign. All right, Elijah, wind, power, gentle voice. God passes by. This is the third great pass by. And what we're talking about here is a theophany. And a theophany is a supernatural manifestation of deity. And if you will, Jesus, who was fully God and fully man for a few moments, I think, actually said, I'm going to set the man aside just for a second here. Watch this. It'll happen a couple chapters later in the transfiguration. Remember how he's transfigured and Moses and Elijah appear to him? This is, you're talking theophany land here now. That's why they thought it was a ghost. Because it was. It was non-material as we know material. And it was Jesus. And it, well, it was the glory of God in all of his divineness. And then he says, Courage, ego, me. I am. That's how that's translated. It's the same words that God used with Moses when Moses says, Well, if you want me to go back to Egypt, who do I say sent me? And God says, Just tell them, I am. It's the same words that are used in the book of John when the Pharisees are on top of Jesus trying to break him down and they say, you think you're greater than Moses. You think you're greater than Abraham. And Jesus says, before Abraham was ever born, I am. It is the word for who God is that defies language. It is God in theophany. Why? And they're terrified. Why? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why that happened at this moment. Here's a couple things I think. One, 
Maybe he was just getting tired of them thinking he was only a human Messiah. Maybe the godness hadn't hit them yet. Uh, they, they called him Messiah, but see, to the Messiah, the Messiah was a blood person from the line of David who would be great. The zealots wanted him to be a blood person who would be great. But he's more. The disciples have to get this. Or when Jesus ascends to the Father, they'll be of no use whatsoever. He who is in them is the great I Am. Well, does that happen to you? How many times every day do you forget how great God is? And you kind of say, well, I'll just keep trudging along here. Or, I will serve God. You can't serve God. God serves through you. It's all Christ. It's all God and none of us. The saddest verse of this whole passage is right there in 52. They just literally did not understand about the loaves. Huh? He had been the provision they needed. They didn't get it. Even the theophany, it says their hearts were hardened. That doesn't mean they don't believe in God. That doesn't mean they're becoming antichrists and moving away. What it is is they haven't gotten yet that in and of themselves, in their own strength, in their own power, they can't live the Christ life. The only way you can live the Christ-filled life is to allow Christ to live that life in and through you as a daily habitual pattern. The people of Genesaret will get it. Our last three verses there, 53 to 56, they land at Genesaret, which is 10 miles the other direction from where they were going. And crowds of people are there. And these people believe in him so much that they're running to and fro, bringing sick people. They just want to hear. They, they just believe if they can even touch his clothes, they'll be made right. The disciples still aren't there yet. And an awful lot of Christians throughout the world are not there yet. I believe the message of this, uh, these passages together is even with Christ in us, we can have hardened hearts in the sense of we still think we work for God. But instead, we relinquish all that he might live his life in and through us. Two quotes for you as I close. It takes Jesus with you to live the Jesus life through you. It takes Jesus with you. The whole secret to Christian joy and peace and meaning is self-abdication so that God may live his life in and through us. And then finally, to strain through life's storms or sail through them with Jesus' command in your life. That is the question. Oh, God wants you to know the joy of living your life in such union with Him that He is literally living, breathing, pushing through you. 
That's where the joy is. That's where the power is. That's where the peace is. We're going to have a song just before we close. Then feel free to come down for prayer if you need.